Welcome everyone. Um, welcome to Grand Rounds for April for Providence Medford. Today we have an update on congestive heart failure and we're pleased to have Dr. Amelia Arden from our local cardiology group. Dr. Arden. Yes, good morning. Good morning everybody. Um, probably you guys don't know me much but uh, you've seen some of my notes. Uh, and today I'll bring up some information, new updates in congestive heart failure. They just renew the guidelines. Um, actually, they updated in February with some new information. So as you know, um, heart failure is actually a, a complex syndrome involving multiple organs. Um, and it happens when um, the heart is incapable of maintaining a cardiac output um, to accommodate the metabolic requirements and also the venous return. And it could be due to decreasing contractility or abnormal relaxation with increased filling pressure. Uh, the new nomenclature that we uh, start using and you probably will see in our notes are uh, the initial classification of heart failure with reduced EF, so half RAF, when the EF is less than 40%. Uh, heart failure with mild reduced EF, with EF of 41 to 49%, and uh, heart failure with preserved EF or half PEF, how we say it shorter, with EF greater than 50%. And the way they um, determine this is based on, first of all, ejection fracture, but also um, with regard to the filling pressure, which could be measured uh, by checking a BMP or by invasive uh, measurements looking at the LVEDP. And it's the same for uh, EF of 40, oh, for EF with mild reduced EF or for EF with preserve, um, preserve function. Some statistics in congestive heart failure worldwide, there, is, there are about 22 million people diagnosed with CHF. In the United States, 5.8 million class three to four. Three to four. Um, uh, class uh, heart failure class. Incidents worldwide, 2 million new cases every year. And in the United States, uh, 700,000 new cases per year with uh, age over 65, 10 out of 1,000 patients will be diagnosed with heart failure and one in nine deaths in 2009, including heart failure con contributing to their deaths. Uh, when we look at gender discrepancy, we see after age 65, women and male have similar incidence of heart failure. In the younger population, it appears that the male have uh, more incidence of heart failure, and that's probably because of coronary artery disease. After 65, women catch up with uh, male on um, coronary artery disease. Uh, acute decompensation heart failure is probably one of the biggest diagnoses uh, in hostels, and um, there were over a million hospitalization annually in US with 4.1% in hostel mor mortality, and 
the hospitalization duration on average 6.5 days, uh, 30 days readmission 20% and 6 to 12 months readmission 50%. So it's a huge burden and mortality of 30 days is 10% and in 12 months, 20 to 40%. So big burden for our healthcare system. So heart failure um, is graded based on New York Heart uh, Association functional, functional class. And we go from class one, patients that have no symptoms with ordinary activity. Class two, they have slight limitation with physical activity. Uh, but comfortable at rest and only or, uh, increase symptoms with ordinary um, physical activity. And some of the symptoms they may experience fatigue, palpitation, dyspnea, or angina. Class three, they have marked limitation of physical activity, but comf comfortable at rest. And with ordinary uh, physical activity, they have increase in symptoms of shortness of breath, palpitation, this um, angina. Class four, in a, unable to carry uh, usual physical activity. They have symptoms even at rest. <clears throat> then we have uh, congestive hyperphilic uh, stage classification. And stage A is considered patients at risk for heart failure. Stage B, patients that have some structural heart disease. Stage three, patients that do have symptoms of heart failure and stage D and stage heart failure. A better uh, table that I liked is um, these that I copy from uh, the ACC guidelines. Stage A at risk actually consider even patients that have hypertension, um, were exposed to cardiotoxic agents such chemotherapy, they have diabetes, they have family history of cardiomyopathies, uh, or they have genetic mutations, although they don't express any symptoms yet. They are all considered at risk for heart failure and stage B uh, category, patients with structural heart disease, uh, increasing filling pressure, uh, and other risk factors such as um, valvular disease, um, sleep apnea. And these patients uh, on occasion, they may have increased uh, BNP and they may have um, elevated filling pressure or release of troponin. Stage C, patients with current and previous symptoms, signs of heart failure and um, stage D, of course, advanced heart failure patients that um, are hospitalized frequently for uh, symptomatic heart failure. And uh, we looked at mortality modes of death in patients with heart failure and based on degree of heart failure. And uh, in class, New York Heart Association class two, we see only about 12% of patients die from heart failure. Other uh, cause of that are much higher level. Stage three, um, New York Heart Association, up to 26% will die of heart failure. And as they advance to stage four, about 56% of patients will die of heart failure. Um, etiology of heart failure, um, you, you probably all know, ischemic heart disease is the, the biggest burden. Uh, hypertension, which is not treated, idiopathic cardiomyopathy in patients with familiar cardiomyopathy, 
uh, infection etiology, viral myocarditis, Chagas disease, toxins, including alcohol, cytotoxic drugs, recreational drugs, which is very common in our population, valvular disease, prolonged arrhythmia, and uh, infiltrative etiologies such as uh, amyloidosis, um, and um, uh, hemochromatosis. Amyloidosis got a lot of track in the f uh, most recent years since uh, there are new drugs on the horizon to treat especially the ATTR amyloidosis. And sarcoid is another condition. Um, left ventricular dysfunction uh, is probably um, the uh, most common impaired contractility is the most common reason for severe and advanced heart failure. And um, approximately two thirds of the patient with heart failure have systolic dysfunction. Diastolic dysfunction, it's a little less severe, although we are diagnosing more and more, especially in uh, women, diastolic heart failure. And this is due to impaired relaxation and increased filling pressures. And when we look at them, we know that um, actually the diastolic heart failure is more of a filling problem due to myocardial stiffness and a small left ventricular chamber with backflow into the uh, left atrium pulmonary vein and therefore in pulmonary bed. Or, uh, and then systolic um, heart failure is more of a pumping problem meaning the left ventricular contractility is decreased, therefore the pressures are increased and the um, uh, left ventricular of cardiac output is decreased. And there is again backup flow into the pulmonary bed. Some of the determinants of uh, ventricular uh, function are preload, contractility, afterload, we have um, heart rate and uh, synergistic left ventricular contraction, wall integrity, and valvular competency. Sorry, I was playing with my slides and I couldn't undo them. Uh, left ventricular dysfunction, systolic, and diastolic symptoms wise, patients, most of them will complain of shortness of breath uh, with minimum exertion or even at rest. Many of them will have paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, tachycardia, cough, hemoptysis, and some of the signs would be basilar rails, pulmonary edema, uh, S3 gallop on uh, cardiac auscultation, pleural effusion, and we see frequently changed of respiration, especially at night. And based on um, studies looking at sleep apnea, most patients that have heart failure will also have some degree of sleep disorder. So remember when I said um, um, heart failure, it's a syndrome because it involves multiple organs uh, and it's a neurohormonal storm in case, especially in advanced heart failure. And some of the neurohormonal that we'll talk about is sympathetic nervous system, renin-angiotensin, aldosterone system, and antidiuretic hormone vasopressin. So the brain actually is very involved in patients with heart failure. 
uh, by decreasing contractility or uh, increasing um, filling pressure, there is a lot of neurohormonal release, uh, sympathetic stimulation that um, is pouring like an outflow to myocardium to increase contractility. But over time, that can actually uh, cause myocardial toxicity. Um, in the same time, the sympathetic uh, stimulation of the kidney, peripheral vascular for vasoconstriction. By stimulating the, the renal function, there is increased uh, renin angiotensis system to vasoconstrict fluid retention by uh, the means of sodium retention. And overall, um, it's um, complex by um, decreasing cardiac output, increasing blood pressure, increasing pulmonary congestion and edema. The other neurohormonal that uh, we really focus frequently is uh, B-type nitroretic peptide, although uh, atrial nitroretic peptide and C-type nitroretic peptide are present, but we measure frequently B-type nitroretic peptide, which is released when there is increased uh, um, stretch of the left ventricle, and initially, it's helpful in the sense that um, a ba balance vasodilation in uh, venous and arteriola and coronary artery decreases aldosterone and norepinephrine and increases diuresis. The long term actually becomes detrimental. Um, so overall, neurohormones will help retain salt and water. Uh, increase in vasoconstriction and increase the sympathetic stimulation. And initially it's an adaptive mode, but long-term can be detrimental uh, by causing pulmonary congestion, anosarca, um, and um, increase in cardiac uh, energy expenditure and therefore decrease in contractility. So assessment of congestive heart failure, we all, um, practice it on a daily basis, but just to kind of remind everyone, um, it's a uh, initially it's a clinical diagnosis. We take a good history, physical examination, an electrocardiogram because arrhythmia, many patients that go into heart failure will develop arrhythmia. So it's important to check that. Uh, nitratic peptide, uh, we use the BNP, not the N-terminal pro-BNP in our facility, and an echocardiogram will be very important to assess the heart function. Additional testing if necessary, uh, like left and right heart cat uh, may help. Um, and once we have the diagnosis confirmed, then we have to determine what category they are in. If it's half RAF or ha uh, half with mild reduced EF or half PATH. Um, and then we need to evaluate the factors that triggers left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure and initiate a treatment. Um, I see frequently on chest X-ray patients diagnosed with cardiomyopathy or um, cardiomegaly. It's not the best test to do it, but nonetheless, they trigger um, the best test, which is the echocardiogram. And in an echocardiogram, we do look for left ventricular diameter or dimensions. We uh, look for wall thickness. We'll look for contractility, wall motion, 
Um, so it's a very good. It's actually one of the best tests to evaluate the structure of the heart and function. We look at right ventricular pressure uh, to, to evaluate for pulmonary hypertension, left atrium there. Uh, in may, many patients with hypertension and uh, even a half path may have left ventricular left atrial enlargement. And then we assess the valvular pressures or valvular flow and function. Um, and then uh, once we have the diagnosis, we can initiate treatment. It is sometimes a vicious cycle. You see patients in the emergency room, they get diuries with IV diuretics, hospitalized for a few days, get them back to, to dry weight, discharge them home, seen in a clinic by primary physician, again, back uh, increasing weight, shorter breath. Uh, increasing oral diuretic may help, but ultimately it becomes a vicious cycle. Patient ends up in emergency room again. And it's important that we have, um, actually focus on general measures like lifestyle modification. Weight reduction is always helpful. Uh, patients that smoke to discontinue smoking, and I'm big advocate to decrease alcohol to minimum or abstain from it, since in many patients, alcohol not only that can be cardiotoxic, but it will trigger sleep disorder. They will precipitate another uh, storm of neurohormonal that will end up with increased blood pressure, uh, arrhythmia, uh, fluid retention. So I send frequently patients for evaluation of sleep apnea and exercise is actually one of the best lifestyle changes, although difficult, but it's probably better than many drugs that we prescribe. And of course, treat optimally the blood pressure. The goal for blood pressure now it's less than 130 over 80. Hyperlipidemia, diabetes, it's a big deal because patients with hyperglycemic state, they will retain more fluid. They will be, again, shifting in renal function and uh, fluid retention and treat the arrhythmia. We see frequently patients with cardiomyopathy associated to uh, poorly controlled atrial fibrillation. Um, of course, coronary revascularization patients with uh, coronary artery disease, anticoagulation patients with arrhythmia, immunization, very important sodium restriction, daily weight, and I usually tell patients to weigh themselves at the same time with the same amount of clothing or no clothing. And um, then close monitoring of um, compliance with medical therapy. So um, Actually, in cardiology, we are big in guidelines. We have lots of guidelines that we have to focus on and follow. And um, by applying the guideline, it was noted that patients with heart failure, uh, when the guidelines are implemented closer, they have improved in clinical outcome in the real world. For each 10% improvement of guideline uh, recommendation, there was actually 13% lower odds of 24 month mortality and a composite co uh, conformity 70% in those alive versus 63.4 in those that were not alive. So applying the guidelines appears to uh, improve outcome and uh, improve longevity in these patients with a very bad diagnosis. 
So pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical management, we all are familiar with uh, ACE inhibitor and is still a class one indication for uh, patients with heart failure, half path or half RAF, although half path is um, not always um, chosen, but uh, and actually improves the symptoms. Uh, it takes a while to see outcome one to two months after initiation of uh, therapy, and it's important to always monitor the potassium and uh, renal function. And patients uh, may become hypotensive, and I usually encourage them to um, kind of keep track of their fluid intake and log their blood pressure and heart rate. Beta blocker, it's again class one indication in uh, patients with um, heart failure. And again, uh, it takes a while to see the uh, effect of the beta blocker. It's important not to initiate beta blocker when they have acute decompensated heart failure because it's a negative inotrope, so patients may develop, may be more short of breath initially. Um, and uh, as we know, the beta blocker does uh, block the excess of sympathetic stimulation, therefore the heart rate will decrease. And it's very important, especially in patients with diastolic heart failure, to have some dec um, decrease in heart rate because the heart feeling depends on diastole. Uh, and if the heart rate increases, they will decompensate and a heart rate of 60 to 70 will be more appropriate for this patient. So they have more time uh, for uh, feeling. And as I mentioned, uh, beta blocker is a class one indication. Um, and some of the medication that we use, curvetolol, uh, bisoprolol, sustained release metoprolol, and uh, we avoid the short acting metoprolol in patients with um, half RAF. Diuretics, again, uh, important, but shouldn't be used by themselves. Um, without other medication like ACE inhibitor and beta blockers. Uh, important to monitor electrolytes. Um, and a higher dose of diuretic use is associated with increased mortality. Aldosterone antagonists, pernalactone, aplaranone, um, they are well tolerated by patients and used uh, and recommended in patients with class heart failure two to four who are already on ACE or and beta blocker. And we subscribe them mostly in patients with less EF less than 35% or 40%, creatinine less than 2.5 and potassium uh, less than 4.5. Side effects from this medication could be hypokalemia. So if a patient has hypokalemia while on spironolactone with discontinue, or as we see the creatinine increases, we should be cautious and discontinue the medication. And again, it's class one indication for patients with the half RAF, uh, heart failure, New York Heart Association two to four. Um, Angiotensin receptor blocker, we have to remember not to use them instead of a uh, ACE inhibitor. Should still ACE inhibitor is still 
the primary um, class one indication for half RAF patients. Although um, when they become intolerant due to uh, aller uh, allergy, like a cough, um, we do change to um, angiotensin receptor blocker. Uh, it, it is a little easier tolerated by patients, so we tend to prescribe more frequent um, angiotensin receptor blocker than ACE inhibitor. And also, um, since angiotensin receptor blocker is now uh, a combination medication with um, naprolysin, many times we do start patient on ARB in anticipation of adding the uh, sucubritol or uh, entresto without having to stop the medication. Uh, usually, oh, if they are on ACE before then, we have to hold ACE for 36 hours. The other medication that we don't use frequently uh, is uh, hydralazine nitrates. It's actually uh, in patients that cannot tolerate ACE or ARB, and it's an excellent uh, medication. Also in patients of African-American origin, they respond better to hydralazine nitrates. Digoxin is still a medication that we use in end-stage heart failure to, um, they are already on beta blocker and all the other guideline medical therapy didn't improve survivor, but improve symptoms. So it's still occasionally use uh, medication uh, added as to um, heart failure guideline uh, directed medical therapy. The novel pharmaceutical um, management. So this is where probably we'll spend more time uh, one of the medication that we use frequently is angiotensin receptor blocker nephrolysin inhibitor, ARNI. It's Securbrutal Balsartan, also called Entresto. Um, the novel one, LGL2 inhibitor, sodium glucose co-transported 2, and they are three approved. Empa gliflozine, dapagliflozine, and canagliflozine. I do not know where they find these names. And GLP1 um, receptor agonist, Victoza. And one that probably many patients haven't heard of, uh, many people haven't heard of is Evabradine. It's a, um, uh, a channel blocker for um, arrhythmia, for heart rate. And we'll talk about it in a few slides later on. So um, ARNI, the Entresto, uh, the biggest study that they had was a paradigm heart failure, and they actually included over 8,000 patients, and they compare um, valsartan combined with nephrolysin inhibitor, as also called secubitrol, against enalapril in patients with uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fracture um, and near class association 2 to 4, EF less than 40. The primary outcome was composite death from cardiovascular cause and, or hospitalization for heart failure. The population, the average age was 60. 
was not as homogeneous as we would like. There were 66% Caucasian, only 5% African-American, and only 21% female. Uh, most of patients were in class two harphelia, um, about 72%, and initial BMP at uh, the start of the study was 255. And when they looked at uh, the results, the primary composite outcome actually was very good with regard to uh, cardiovascular uh, death from cardiovascular uh, causes or first hospitalization for worsening heart failure that uh, with a p-value of 0.01 and secondary outcome um, death from any cause a new onset of atrial fibrillation, decline in renal function. Um, so decline in renal function was a little up, but that from any causes was still a good uh, outcome. The outcome was so good that actually, I am, from my reading, they actually uh, stopped this, the trial before completion due to benefit from Secubritol in patients with HFRAF. And it became a class one indication for uh, patients with HFRAF class two or three who tolerated ACE inhibitor or ARB. They were replaced by an, a Secubitrol um, and is recommended to reduce further morbidity and mortality. Now, in patients uh, with a concomitant ACE inhibitor, there was class three, so it's harmful. So we have to hold ACE inhibitor 36 hour from the last dose to initiate Secubitrol due to uh, NGOEDEMA and can be pretty significant. It's not the same with ARBs. So if patient is already on Valsartan, we'll just change directly to an Entresto or Secubitrol without holding the medication, but with ACE inhibitor, they noticed that um, patients had angioedema. So right now, uh, Secubitrol or ARNI, um, ACE inhibitor and ARB, they are class one indication. In patient with HFRAF, New York Heart Association 223, uh, symptoms use of ARNI is recommended to reduce morbidity and mortality. So we have a lot of patients in our clinic that are on Secubitrol. We do have samples to initiate the therapy and we work with our nurses to submit for um, pre-approval, um, some financial assistance because the outcome is so great in these patients. I was reluctant initially. It took me a, probably a year to uh, see the outcome to be able to promote the medication. Um, again, this is um, the same category. Sodium glucose co-transport two inhibitor. Uh, so um, SGLT2 is a sodium glucose co-transporter in the proximal tubular of the nephron, responsible for about 90% of glucose reabsorption. Inhibition of this uh, co-transporter actually 
causes glucosuria, so patients excrete the glucose. Um, by inhibiting the co-transporter causes diuresis and has a natriuretic effect in addition to weight loss and lowering systolic blood pressure. I do have a cartoon uh, and the SGL2 inhibitor actually does more than just that, increases the hematocrit by decreasing the hypoxia at, in the nephrons, which reverses the uh, and improves the erythropoietin production of hematocrit. So patients that um, have a chronic disease, a chronic renal dysfunction and have uh, decreased hematocrit will uh, have improvement in their uh, hematopoiesis. In addition, uh, they will have increased in glucagon release versus glucagon versus um, insulin ratio. Therefore, they will have more lipolysis and improved glycemic control, therefore improves the weight. Um, they reduce, it reduces plasma volume by um, glucosuria and volume excretion um, and therefore decreases the blood pressure uh, by uh, decreasing the afterload. Decreases preload in the same token, therefore decreases the leventricular um, uh, and diastolic pressure, the filling pressure, and improve ventricular loading condition and contractility. So sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitor, uh, there were two big trials uh, of two, uh, that's only two I actually brought up, EMPRA-RAG, um, which is empagliflozin uh, trial, and the CANVAS, uh, which is canagliflozin uh, trial, they both have demonstrated significant reduction in uh, major advanced cardiac events uh, and patients randomized to receive the SGLT2 inhibitor therapy compared to placebo. And here are the two uh, studies. Patients were uh, large amounts of patients involved in both trial, the AMPA and the CANVAS. Um, and they were followed between 2.5 and 3.1 years. And when you look at um, um, the primary outcome with regard to cardiovascular, they were all improved. Um, cardiovascular death improved significantly, especially on uh, with regard to empaglifazon. Um, fatal or non-fatal MI also on both improve. The only one that really hasn't uh, done that well was fatal or non-fatal stroke, especially with amphagliterone, and I don't know exactly why. All-cause mort mortality improved and heart failure hospitalization improved on both. Of note, patients um, had a mean hemoglobin A1c of 8.1, 8.2. So overall, the cardiovascular benefit from these drugs were significantly, um, probably unexpected. And based on those trial, the uh, guidelines were changed and SGLT2 inhibitor became class one indication 
in patients with symptomatic chronic heart failure, HFRAF um, is recommended to reduce hospitalization and cardiovascular mortality. Uh, irrespective of type 2 diabetes, so that's uh, impressive. Of, of course, the guideline um, includes now four medication class, that, including SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, but it's class 2A recommendation in heart failure with uh, mild reduced EF and the same with the heart failure with preserved EF. And the recommendation for heart failure with preserved EF was just included in February of this year. Here is a, um, I don't know if it's easy viewed, but um, a guideline um, directed therapy based on stage of heart failure. Stage uh, one, um, establish the heart failure, reduce EF. EF, if it's less than 40% with stage th uh, C heart failure, adding an entresto is important. Uh, beta blocker, um, mineralocorticoid antagonist like aldosterone, and SGLT2I is class one in addition to the diuretics. Um, and if patients is doing well, the EF improves, you continue the therapy. Um, and um, if patients is now class three to four heart failure, um, and in patients that are African-American, adding the hydrolysis nitrates is important. If they are um, have one year or more survival rate with low EF, consider ICD. And if they have a left bundle branch block with QRS duration greater than 120 milliseconds, or here I have 150 milliseconds, uh, CRT, um, Biventricular ICD is important. If they have refractory stage D heart failure, um, then consider uh, heart transplant, refer them to advanced heart failure. And we do have patients that are referred to Providence St. Vincent's heart transplant or advanced heart failure to help us kind of guide us in augmenting therapy to improve their outcome. Um, this is an, another summary of guidelines for the LSGLT2 inhibitor. As you know, um, diuretic as needed uh, for heart failure with mild reduced EF, SGLT2, it's a 2A um, recommendation, and the same for half PATH patients, it's a class 2A. Uh, as you notice, the ARNI or Entresto, it's again class 2B uh, for these patients. So SGLT2 has a higher level of indication than the Entresto in these patients. Well, this is a very kind of complex slide that I got from the ACC. Um, pretty much talking about the same uh, modality of introducing SGLT2 as a uh, guideline director in medical therapy class one in patients with 
uh, at risk for heart failure, even if they don't have uh, diabetes. But if they have diabetes, is actually in patients with stage two uh, even a better indication. Uh, nonetheless, we have to consider all the other um, therapies in a um, their class one indication. Potential mechanism by which the SGLT2 inhibitor decreases cardiovascular, as I mentioned in this cartoon slide, diuresis, nitroresis, decreased blood pressure, decreased uh, weight, prevents uh, albuminuria, decreased renal decline, more efficient in keto-based metabolism, decreases sympathetic tone and blockade of sodium hydro hydrogen co-transport. Consequence will be, of course, decrease in filling pressure, uh, decrease in preload and afterload, decrease in myocardial uh, workload, improve cardiovascular profile, decrease uh, blood pressure, decrease renal profile uh, risk, improve metabolic efficiency, organ tissue protection by decreased kidney and myocardial injury, and decrease risk of arrhythmia by decreasing blood pressure and cardiovascular events. Now, there are some, um, and I underline with red, uh, cautious and contraindication patients with uh, serious hypersensitivity to the drug and patients uh, with end-stage renal failure with severe impairment of kidney function, end-stage renal or, or on hemodialysis. Cautions needs to be taken due to the fact that patients may become hypovolemic due to volume contraction, particularly in patients with renal impairment. Patients uh, with low blood pressure may become hypotensive, and those that are on diuretics and early, elderly patients. Increased incidence of bone fraction, they were noticed, and osteoporosis, especially on canagliflozine. Hypoglycemia risk increase with patients that also are on insulin, increased risk of mycotic genital infection, euglycemic ketoacidosis in vulnerable patients, and there were some patients that had history of amputation, severe peripheral vascular disease, neuropathy, or diabetic foot ulcer. Discussion was mostly with canagliflozine and um, to glyphosine. Uh, no incidence risk of amputation has been seen for uh, depaglyphosine or amphaglyphosine. But um, patients with osteoporosis, we need to be cautious because it can cause osteoporosis. So I, I found some information on um, each new uh, medication with regard to the dosage and cost and specific side effects. So on canaglophazine, which is Invocana or Invocana XR, the dose is 100 to 300 milligram. The XR, it's a combination between canaglophazine and metformin. And those can be adjusted up to 300 milligrams to 200 mil of canaglophazine and 2,000 milligrams of metformin. The cost is uh, sometime um, very high. Invocana is 300 for 30 tablets. If you calculate per year, that's you know, 3,600. 
And in Vokana XR, it's even more expensive. Some of the side effects with this medication denote some bone fracture, diabetic ketoacidosis, renal injury, and lactic acidosis. So these patients have to be followed very closely, especially advanced in age or patients that are on insulin, on large amounts of diuretic. The dapaglifosine for SIGA, and I've seen a lot of ads, was approved by FDA in 2014. It's 5 milligram to 10 milligram, the biggest dose. The XR called Zigudo, Zigduo, <laughs> um, 5 milligram of dapaglifosine and 500 milligrams of metformin, up to 10 milligrams and a thousand of metformin. It's a little more expensive, $334 per 30 days, and the XR is $457 for 30 days. Side effects that might cause and kind of need to be aware of, bladder cancer, diabetic ketoacidosis, UTI, lactic acidosis, and kidney injury. The Ephaglifazone Jardians, uh, they have actually three um, type of medication. Jardians, 10 to 25 milligrams dose. Glexamib, 10 milligrams. Um, Amphaglifazone and 5 milligrams linagliptin. I actually didn't look to see what that medication is, but... Um, and Sinjardi, it's a 5 milligram Amphaglifazone and five, 500 milligrams metformin. The cost, again, is much higher. And some of the side effects of this one could be pancreatitis, pancreatic cancer, CHF, especially with glycosamine, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, lactic acidosis, and UTI. So who should prescribe this medication? It's kind of, um, they did a consensus, they asked questions, and about 65.8% believe there should be the cardiologist as the uh, um, primary prescriber. But only about 16.3% of cardiologists recommended the medication. And some of the reason why it was not recommended uh, was mostly because concern with hypoglycemia and needing to adjust baseline diabetic medication. So the cardiologist didn't, get, didn't want to get involved. The primary care physician, um, they, the consensus suggested only 17.9% um, should be the PCP to initiate. But many times it's harder for the PCP to initiate the medication. Um, for different reasons, difficult to approve. Uh, the approval process is uh, cumbersome and the cost to the patient. Lack of experience with medication, actually, um, I only have one patient that I prescribe the medication to, uh, and I'm wa waiting to see how he does, and I'm following him closely. Uh, concern with non-cardiac side effects, such as um, urogenital infection, and of course, the cardiologists don't want to get involved. Uh, overall, pill burden, so patients have to use more medication. Um, and 
general practice to avoid early adoption of newly approved therapy. And I personally have to say I'm in that category because I need to see uh, on my own benefit um, to feel comfortable prescribe it. FDA approved many drugs and then they backed off from them. So they have a track of not always um, having all the data presented to them. There is one medication that um, I wanted to bring up, the LGP1 uh, receptor agonist, uh, and this is Victoza, which is uh, different than um, the Jardins. Uh, it's a peptide hormone that's released in the distal ileum and colon after oral nutrient intake and followed by administration of the medication. Um, it's a supraphysiologic concentration of the receptor, which reduces glucose by increased glucose-dependent insulin secretion and decreases glucagon secretion and by de delaying gastric emptying, which leads to early satiety, so patients lose weight on it. And believe it or not, it's a, a um, class one indication um, in patients with, um, it's FDA approved to reduce risk of major advanced cardiac ev events. Um, in patients with type 2 diabetes, they have established cardiovascular disease. And when they looked at the studies, they actually realized that uh, patients did uh, have less cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, uh, with a composite was reduced by 13%, which is significant. So on um, expert consensus decision pathway, uh, that group of medication is added. Patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus would establish atherosclerotic uh, coronary or cardiovascular disease. Uh, we assess the patient. Uh, patient is on guideline directing medical therapy, including lifestyle um, modification, antiplatelet, blood pressure, lipid lowering medication, and glucose lowering therapy like metformin. If patient is doing fine, no addition of medication, but uh, consider adding SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP1-RA, uh, which demonstrated decrease in cardiovascular um, mortality and cardiovascular benefit. But we need to initiate the discussion with patient. If patient is reluctant to add more medication and the cost is prohibited, then no additional therapy. One addition could be the SGLT2 inhibitor selected or S uh, or GLP1RA selected, which is Victoza. Um, and I've seen patients that were on Victoza, they lost weight. By losing weight, their cardiovascular risk factor went down. Um, Evabradin. So Evabradin is actually a medication that's recommended to uh, be added to beta blocker in patients with uh, sympathetic stimulation of myocardium and increasing heart rate on maximum beta blocker and still have heart rate greater than 70 beats per minute. It's actually a selective inhibits uh, IF channels, uh, which inhibits the inward uh, sodium potassium current. 
which depress, decreases the sinus node stimulation and slows down the heart rate. Therefore, these patients with um, um, advanced heart failure will have lower heart rate, which is important in cardiac function. So the, the uh, evabradine is actually um, very seldom added, but it's a class two indication patients with uh, New York Heart Association stage four and ischemic or non-ischemic etiology with low EF, heart rate still greater than 70 despite the maximal uh, beta blocker therapy. And they are in sinus rhythm because remember it works on sinus node and they documented hospitalization uh, that improve over 12 months. And this is the trial, shift trial that was uh, performed in patients that heart rate was in 60s with evabradine. They had less hospitalization, less symptoms, and better outcome. It's a class two indication, um, benefits uh, and reduces heart failure hospitalization in patients with advanced heart failure. They have to have a low EF and be on all the other guideline medical therapy with heart rate still greater than 70. Um, so overall, I have a list of all the classes of therapy for patients with HEFRAF, um, ACE, ARB, ARNI, which is the interest beta blocker of mineralocorticoid receptor uh, antagonist, uh, SGLT2 inhibitor, hydralazine or nitrates, CRT and ICD. I haven't yet talked about the CRT, which is the resynchronization therapy. Um, see. So resynchronization therapy is considered for patients with stage three to four heart failure on optimal medical therapy with left bundle branch block. QRS duration actually from what I remember was 130 milliseconds and EF less than 35%. Um, the same for ICD uh, implantation, but for the ICD patients has to have greater than a year potential of survivor and be off the uh, illicit drugs that cause cardiomyopathy. The um, Resynchronization therapy is a biventricular device that's um, indicated for these patients. And actually, uh, patients that had biventricular device, they do uh, have improvement in ventricular function and overall fu functional capacity. But there are some patients that are not responders. Um, to two thirds of the patients should experience improvement, but still one third that may not. And um, depends on what studies you look at, you'll find the response. Is it uh, positioning of the left ventricular lead or is it uh, the advance of myocardium or there are other reasons for myocardium uh, decreased contractility rather than ischemic cardiomyopathy. So um, we still refer patients for C CRT. Any questions? I'm done. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Arden. That was that was a lot of information. Thanks. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and 
please feel free to type any questions in into the Q&A chat. I'm not seeing any just yet, but um, I have a couple. Um, one question that came up for me um, on your slide earlier about uh, the ICD and uh, the one year survival. Uh, how do you what tool do you use to determine if they have a greater than one year survival? Well, most of these patients are also part of the advanced heart failure clinic. So um, we look at uh, hospitalization. Uh, we also discuss with them palliative care. So if they're open for no more procedure, then but there are some patients that really um, we augment the medical therapy. And uh, I've seen personally, I've seen very good outcome on Entresto. And I've seen EF going from 20 to 35 in, in another six months to 40%. So in those patients, um, uh, you know, we do promote, if we see improvement and they adhere to medical therapy, we do encourage the ICD placement uh, with the idea that the patient is well informed, that's not going to, to improve quality of life, but it will save in case of fatal arrhythmia. Um, it's, it's hard to maintain patients uh, on medical therapy because uh, many of them still want to live as they always did. And you see indulgement in high sodium diet and back to emergency in heart failure or sleep apnea compliance. I cannot stress how important evaluation for sleep apnea is in these patients with um, advanced heart failure. And they you know, travel and they don't take their CPAP and they come back in heart failure. But yes, uh, and patients that are uh, methamphetamine abusers or drug abusers, they have to be at least six, six months clean to, uh, or alcohol, uh, patients with alcohol cardiomyopathy, they have to be in remission to qualify for it. All right, thanks. Um, another question, you know, as a primary care physician, um, when should we refer someone with, as soon as we make the diagnosis, is that a good time to uh, to refer to cardiology? I, I think so. It's actually very um, good to um, have the subspecialty involved early in the process. It uh, unloads some of your work. And I know, um, you know, we are short staff in every aspect and it helps um, patient's management early in a process of heart failure. So uh, hopefully preventing some of the hospitalizations. Okay. And even patients that are at risk. Um, in my previous practice, I've seen a lot of patients that uh, went through chemotherapy. Um, and those patients are already at increased risk of developing uh, heart failure just by being exposed to cytotoxic medication. They save their lives, but yeah, causes mm -hmm. other <laughs> right. problems. Yeah, with the, um, I was just going to comment with the SGLT2 uh, um, inhibitors. That's, uh, that's one that seems really important to coordinate between the cardiologist and primary care and 
come up with a strategy for because uh, I think that might be a joint decision a lot of the time. Um, I that's totally the agree. Theory. I totally agree, and I I think that um, I mean we do work close with the primary care physicians in messaging back and forth. Um, we don't have endocrinology support as heavy as in other parts of the country. So, uh, you know, would be only between the primary who, physicians who are actually responsible for more than uh, they need to. And then refer to us uh, if we, so refer to us if you think that the patient is at risk for heart failure and diabetes, would this be a consideration? And we work together with you. Yeah, great. I'm not seeing any other questions, um, but thank you very much. They uh, can always um, send me a message uh, uh, or call me. <laughs> we do have a question that just came in and it's okay. a good one. Um, is it a good idea to make sure patients have a sleep study on file? If they yeah. don't, would it be appropriate to have them discuss the possible need for that study with PCP? So, It is very important to have some sort of evaluation. And many times, because the sleep clinic is so overwhelmed, I order a nocturnal oximetry. And that helps me kind of stratify who should I call Dr. Michael Brink for? and who shouldn't I, especially patients that uh, are in atrial fibrillation and I see on hold the monitor, they go in AFib in the middle of the night uh, and then they are in emergency room uh, the next morning in heart failure. Those patients absolutely need to be evaluated. Uh, we can't keep them in normal rhythm unless they are treated and we can't control their blood pressure unless they are treated and their heart failure unless they are treated. And I noticed that many times the sleep clinic would be kind of questionable, but we see a lot of hypoxia. And those patients, although they don't snore, but they have hypoxia, which triggers all this uh, neurohormonal storm, and they end up in um, heart failure, arrhythmia, hypertension, hard to manage. Thank you. I send more patients for a nocturnal oximetry and sleep apnea, and then I send for cardiac catheterization. All right. Well, I'm not seeing any other questions. I, I think you covered a lot and gave us a lot to think about. So thank you very much for a, an excellent presentation. Well, I appreciated your patience to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of information, but I think it will take practice to get used to the medication. I'm, a, I'm always a little shy about uh, being bold, putting patients on medication that cost a lot of money and they may cause problems. So um, I take my time to select the patient properly so we have good outcome. All right. Well, thank you and thank you everyone for attending our April Grand Rounds and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. I appreciate your presence. Thanks. Bye-bye.